Good morning. Jeff gave me a hard time this morning because he looks like a lumberjack and uh, he says I'm dressed like Hawaii. Let me explain. Uh, last week, uh, all my mother's and father's kids and a number of grandkids and great-grandkids, in fact, four great-grandkids under the age of one, all descended on my mother for her 80th birthday. And uh, we were supposed to dress up, and of course I dressed in my finest church clothes, and it didn't pass my mom's inspection. Earlier in the day, my mom and dad had gone shopping for some Tommy Bahama shirts for my dad. So my mom said, why don't you wear one of those? And I said, oh, my dad's not going to like that. She goes, he'll never know. I said, oh, he'll know. So she comes out with one of the shirts with the tags on. I cut it off. I put it on. My dad walks out and says, that's my shirt. (laughs) And then my mom had the gall to insist that I take it home. So I thought, well, I've got to wear it to church. (laughs) Because it's like nicer clothes than apparently I own. So I know it's like zero degrees out, but I thought I would wear it anyway. Um, One more little announcement. Uh, Next week, we're going to celebrate Reformation Sunday, and if you've been at Highland any length of time, you know that uh, on Reformation Sunday, uh, I do a theological, historical sermon. Uh, Well, next week, we have some visitors, actually. I believe uh, Henry VIII is coming, and uh, Mary I, uh, also called Bloody Mary, and uh, Hugh Latimer, they're all going to visit us to explain to us the Protestant Reformation in England. So that will be next week. Let's uh, ask God to guide our time. Father God, uh, we thank you for the opportunity to sing our praises and worship to you. And now to look at your inspired and errant word. And Father, as we look at our land which is broken... We know that your son is the answer. Your word is the answer. As we look at the events of the last couple weeks, tragedy upon tragedy and horror upon horror and evil perpetrated in our country and outside. And Father, we we ask for your wisdom. And today, again, we talk about wisdom. And Father, as we approach the elections, we ask that you would be merciful in the women and men that you have chosen to lead us. May they lead with your wisdom. And may we choose our leaders wisely. Father, we are a broken people in a broken land and in a broken world. And you are the answer. Give us some of your wisdom today, we ask. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. A little less than a year ago, John Payne and Jared Stichter and I had the opportunity to go to Haiti to do a pastor's conference for a number of Haitian pastors. It was a wonderful experience. 
And on the way back, as we were flying, suddenly the uh, pilot came over the intercom and he said, uh, I have some alarming news, but don't be alarmed. We have four engines, one of them just went out. But don't worry, this plane is capable of flying on three engines. Okay, I didn't really like that. He told us we would be delayed by about 10 minutes because our land speed was a little lower. Then a few minutes later, he came over the intercom and said we had just lost a second engine. And now we would be delayed by 20 minutes. He did the same thing a third time. We had lost a third engine. Now we would be delayed by 30 minutes. You can imagine he came across the intercom one more time. He said that fourth engine has just gone out. At that point, Jared had had enough. He said, at this rate, we'll be in the air all day. <laughs> Today's text is on wisdom. It's also on compassion. Wisdom and compassion together, something that early on in his life, Solomon had. I told a false story a moment ago. Now I'll tell you a true one. Pastor Tony had flown to Honolulu. He had taken a late night, early morning flight, didn't have time really to sleep, was going to be speaking early in the morning. So it was three in the morning, and he went to a coffee shop, thought he would get some caffeine, sat at a counter on a booth, and began to drink some coffee. About 3.15, several prostitutes walked in. They sat a few stools down from him, and they began to talk, and one of the prostitutes was Agnes. Agnes shared with her friend that she was 39 years old. Tomorrow was her birthday, and she had never had a birthday celebration. Birthdays to her were painful. Tony took all of this in and didn't say anything. After the gals left, he turned to the owner, Harry, and his wife. He said, do they come in every morning? He said, like clockwork, 315. He said, well, would you mind, Harry, if tomorrow I bought some streamers, some balloons, and a birthday cake? Agnes, Agnes is 39. She's never had a party. Harry and his mother, excuse me, his wife, loved it. In fact, they sent word to a number of Agnes's friends. And the next day at three in the morning, the place was packed. When Agnes walked in at 3.15, there were streamers and balloons a birthday cake, and everyone cried out, Happy birthday, Agnes! And there were tears running down her face. No one had ever done that for her before. Before everyone left, Pastor Tony asked if he could pray for Agnes. In fact, could he pray for each woman that was there that morning? And there was stunned silence. Here was a Christian pastor praying for a room full of prostitutes, many of which he had remembered their names. 
he had learned just moments earlier, and he prayed for them by name. He didn't compromise his faith, but he understood that they were more than just individuals who lived a sinful life. They were broken individuals. They were made in the image of God. There wasn't a dry eye in the place as Tony prayed for every girl, gal there. When they all left, Harry and his wife turned to Tony. They said, we're not Christ followers. And we don't go to church. And we're not promising to start. But if we start going, we're going to a church that cares for the marginalized like you do. And that's what Solomon did. That's what Solomon did in today's text. He cared for the marginalized, two prostitutes, just like Pastor Tony. I want to pick up in the text. I want to read from 1 Kings chapter 3. Let's read verses 16 to 28. Then two prostitutes came to the king and stood before him. The one woman said, Oh my Lord, this woman and I live in the same house. I gave birth to a child while she was in the house. Then on the third day after I gave birth, this woman also gave birth. And we were alone. There was no one else with us in the house. Only we two were in the house. And this woman's son died in the night because she lay on him. And she arose at midnight and took my son from beside me while your servant slept and laid him at her breast and laid her dead son at my breast. When I rose in the morning to nurse my child, behold, he was dead. But when I looked at him closely in the morning, behold, he was not the child that I had born. But the other woman said, no, the living child is mine and the dead child is yours. The first said, no, the dead child is yours and the living child is mine. Thus they spoke before the king. Then the king said, The one says, This is my son that is alive, and your son is dead. And the other says, No, but your son is dead, and my son is the living one. And the king said, Bring me a sword. So a sword was brought before the king. And the king said, Divide the living child in two, and give half to the one and half to the other. Then the woman, whose son was alive, said to the king, Because her heart yearned for her son, O oh my lord, Give her the living child and by no means put him to death. But the other said, He shall be neither mine nor yours. Divide him. Then the king answered and said, Give the living child to the first woman and by no means put him to death. She is his mother. And all of Israel heard of the judgment that the king had rendered and they stood in awe of the king because they perceived that the wisdom of God was in him to do justice. As you and I saw two weeks ago when we began the account of Solomon and his interaction with God, the Lord came to him and legitimately gave him the only name it and claim it offer in all of history. God said, name what you want, Solomon, and I will give it to you. Name it and claim it. Remember, this is historical literature which means it tells us what happened. It doesn't mean we have the right to do go and do likewise. We don't have the right 
to have this idea of name it and claim it theology today as has become prevalent in society. But God said to one man, name it and claim it. And Solomon said, I'm 20 years old. He actually calls himself a young child. He realizes that he has followed David, who has ruled for 40 years, who has expanded the boundaries, who has been a great king. He is a young, inexperienced man. And so he says, allow me the wisdom to rule your people. Give me your wisdom, God. And God was so pleased with the request that he gave him great wisdom. But now his wisdom is tested. Apparently, two prostitutes come to Solomon and they have a situation in which they do not agree. It is a she said, she said situation. Now, we might be surprised 3,000 years later that two prostitutes make their way to the king. How do they have access to the king? It's a legitimate question. There certainly were lower courts. And what would happen in their system, much like ours, is that you can work your way up the system if the lower courts are unable to come to a a conclusion or if there's an appeal process and the appeal is considered valid to go to the next level and the next level and the next level of court system. The highest level would be going to the king. Now surely in 1000 B.C., Solomon could have said, you know what? I am not going to adjudicate your court system. You all are marginalized. You're outside of the norm. Your morality is not what I want. Surely he could have ignored them, but he chose to care for them, to see them more than just sinners, but people made in the Imago Dei, in the image of God. And so he takes their system, their, their court Uh, situation is brought to him, and, and we can see the facts. Really, the facts are not in dispute, are they? We have two women. They both work in the red light district. Both of them become pregnant. They both give birth to sons three days apart. They both go to bed one night. One of the women rolls over and unbelievably, sadly, horrifically, Her child dies of asphyxiation. They both claim that the dead child belongs to the other and the live child belongs to them. That's the only part of the entire court case in which they disagree. Now understand that it's 1000 B.C., Long before DNA, they've told us twice in the text that they're alone in the house. There are no other witnesses. And although Solomon is a king... He is still under the law of God. And Deuteronomy 19, verse 15, talks about situations like this. It says, A single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established. No wonder this court case has made its way through the system. It's a she said, she said situation. There are no witnesses. There's no additional information. There's no additional evidence. And so clearly you can't find who is guilty and who is not. 
some of us have had similar situations in our life. Maybe you're a parent, and the kids come running in, and one of them says, she hit me, and the other said, no, he hit me. No, she hit, no, he hit, back and forth, no other evidence, no other witnesses. I know it doesn't happen in your house, but in less godly houses, it happens. Or maybe you're a school teacher, public or private or homeschool, and some kids come in and they say, she copied or he stole or she lied or he did, and there's no other witnesses, and you have to adjudicate without further evidence. Or maybe you're a supervisor and you have two supervisees and they can't agree on the facts and you have no way to settle the situation. As a counseling pastor, from time to time, I have couples come in and they can't agree at all on the facts and I'm at a loss to know who is telling the truth and who is shading the truth or if they're both shading the truth. Well, Solomon does something that every counselor wishes he could do. He calls for a sword. Now, why didn't I think of that? Now, you can imagine what's going on in the mind of the servant. He says, go and get me a sword. And when the sword comes back, he tells the servant to dissect the child in two. Suddenly, everyone in the room is horrified. While he's going to get the sword, you can imagine the two prostitutes. They're thinking to themselves, you know what? We have come to the king. He is at a loss to know who's lying and who's not. Now he's sent for a sword. This is not good. And then when the sword arrives, everyone in the room thinks he's a madman. This is an evil king. How do we stop him? He wants to dissect the child into two parts. Now we know what no one in the room knows. We know it's a ruse. We know it's a smokescreen. The intent is to decide who is the real mother because a mother's heart would be willing to give up a child even to someone who tried to kidnap the child rather than have the child die. And so the sword arrives. Solomon says, let's dissect the child. And the mother the real mother says, no, no, I would rather give up my child to the kidnapper than have my child die. While the other lady says, no, no, let's cut the baby in two. We each get a half. That's a fair deal. That's a square deal. Let's do it now. Well, you can imagine all of Israel when they hear the wisdom of Solomon because the mother cries out, no. Stop, and everyone now knows who is the real mother and who is not. So what are we to do with a text like this? How does this apply 3,000 years later? Well, let me offer a few thoughts. First, I think Solomon offers a model of leadership that perhaps we need today. A model of leadership that cares about justice. He cares about justice. He cares about justice even for the marginalized. It would have been easy for him to have nothing to do with two prostitutes. He could have easily removed them from his court case, from his docket. He could have said, you know what? The lower court cases, they couldn't solve it. The lower judges, they couldn't solve it. The lower lawyers, they couldn't handle this. No, we're just going to leave it where it is. But he cares about justice. 
And I think that's what leaders do. Real leaders care about right and wrong. They care about justice and injustice. What does Scripture say? Proverbs 25, 2, written by Solomon. The glory of kings or leaders is to search things out. Things out. Wise leaders care about justice. Second, wise leaders care about compassion. Now think about this for a moment. Solomon is dealing with two women on the fringe of society, marginalized in every way, immoral women. Solomon even writes about these type of gals to his sons. Now, if you're familiar with the book of Proverbs, most of which Solomon wrote, you know from chapter 10 to 29, it's a number of pithy statements. Chapter 30 and 31 was written by different authors, and chapters 1 to 9 are prose. They're not the pithy statements. Chapters 1 to 9 is Solomon as a father writing to his sons and giving them wisdom. Very typical is what we read in Proverbs 5, 1 to 8. Allow me to read it. My son, be attentive to my wisdom. Incline your ear to my understanding, that you may keep discretion, and your lips may guard knowledge. For the lips of a forbidden woman drip honey, and her speech is smoother than oil. But in the end, she is bitter as wormwood, that is a bitter herb, sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. Her steps follow the path to Sheol. She does not ponder the path of life. Her ways wander and she does not know it. And now, O oh sons, listen to me. Do not depart from the words of my mouth. Keep your way far from her and do not go near the door of her house. So Solomon writes to his sons and he says, you know, you probably think you're stronger than you are. You probably think you can place yourself in situations and walk in a godly fashion, but you're weak. Men are weak. So don't go near unchaste. Don't go near immoral women because you likely will give in to the wiles of that individual. Don't do it. That's what he says. And yet when he has two prostitutes in his court, he sees beyond their practice and he sees them make in the image of God. I don't think Americans are very good at this. We're really bad at this. We don't separate somebody's policy from personhood. In fact, we're horrible at this. What happened last night in Pittsburgh in a synagogue? We have 11 murdered Jews, 6 wounded Jews. Why? Because an individual couldn't separate policy from people. He hated the policy of Jews that were pro-immigration. And a house that was pro-immigration, as that synagogue was, he couldn't separate their policy, which he did not like, from their personhood, and he murdered 11 and six are injured. What happened last week and the week before? We have pipe bombs going to George Soros. 
and Kathleen Waters and the Obamas and the Clintons and CNN. Why? Because people can't separate policy from people. We can disagree with policy. We have no right to go after people. Solomon gives us this model. He warns his son. He says, stay away from the policy of unchaste, immoral women. Don't do it. You're weak. Don't go there. But when those women need help, he doesn't see their career. He sees them as people made in the Imago Dei. And though marginalized, he cares for them. And we're coming up to an election. And we don't all agree with one another. I can tell you that 100%. We don't all agree. Will we be able to separate policy from people? Will we be able to vote for the policies we want represented by personhood without hating the people who have a different view than us? Solomon gave us a great model. He separated policy from people. He said, as a policy son, don't go next to unchaste, immoral women. You are weak. But when they came to him, he showed kindness. He showed grace. He cared for the least of these, which was what God commands of his people. The third application we might make is quite subtle, I think. If you look at the text, you might come to notice that only one of the two women are called mother. That's true. Now, if you read the commentaries, they're divided over this. A lot of them ignore the fact. Those who comment on it, the majority say it's purposeful, and a minority say it's stylistic. I think it's purposeful. I think only one is called a mother because only one acts like a mother. A mother understands that she will do almost anything for her child. She understands that it is better to hand the baby over to a kidnapper than to have the baby dissected into two. She cares. She yearns for her son. I've seen this kind of care by mothers before. Betty Ann and I, if you may probably know, were in the foster system and the adoptive system. We were foster parents and adoptive parents. And as foster parents, you sometimes have women who have made an incredible decision on behalf of their child. A decision that just rips their heart out. A decision because they have a baby they know they can't care for well. And they give the child up to someone who can care for the child better. That's what this mother is willing to do. Her name is Marita. Marita is the birth mother of our two oldest. Marita has, I'm not sure how many kids... Eight, nine, not really sure. Marita did not have a good life and she did not come from a good profession. 
Marita has a very low IQ. She's made many moral and ethical choices that deemed her incapable of caring for kids. But I can tell you, Marita loved her kids. Still does, much to my amazement. She is still alive, which is unbelievable because she's had AIDS for over 20 years. But she is still alive. One of my daughters saw her not that far long ago. Every week or every other week, Betty Ann would drive to Houston from Lamarck, Texas, about 50 miles, in a car that did not really have an air conditioning in Houston, with our two girls to spend time with Marita. And although Marita had a very low IQ and made lots of poor choices, she would show up with a Happy Meal or a little trinket from a dollar store. She loved her kids. I think it would be proper to think of her as a mother. Even though the children were taken by the state, she had a mother's heart. That's what we have here. We have a woman who has a mother's heart. And she's willing to give her child up to a kidnapper rather than have her child dissected. In contrast, we have a woman who is not called a mother. And what does she say? Divide the child in two. Give us each half. We each get our fair share Nobody gets a live baby, not a mother. A mother is one who sees the womb as a sacred place, a haven who sees the crib as a sacred place, a haven who will do everything they can to protect a child. That is a mother. That's the one that Proverbs 31, 28 says, her children, when they grow older, will rise up and call her blessed, and her husband also, and he praises her. A mother is someone who recognizes from Genesis 1, 27, that every person is made in the Imago Dei. Recognizes from Psalm 139, 13 to 16, that even at the moment of conception in the womb, God is in the womb knitting a child together, and that child is to be protected and cared for. That's a mother. The text only calls one of these women a mother. The one who would protect the child. Now maybe some of us have not always protected children in the past. That's possible. It's likely. But we can now agree with God, confess in the power of a spirit, turn, repent, and protect children in the womb and outside the womb. That's the one who was called a mother. Finally, one last application. Solomon is given wisdom, but there's a New Testament verse that says that there is one much wiser than Solomon, infinitely wiser than Solomon. Let me read from Matthew 12, verse 42. It says this. The queen of the south, that happened to be the queen of Sheba. We'll talk about her in a few weeks. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon 
is here. The something greater than Solomon that is here is Jesus. Solomon was looking forward to Jesus. We look back on him being here on earth, the incarnation 2,000 years ago. He is the one greater than Solomon, and he has perfect wisdom. And as Solomon adjudicated, as he wisely ruled over his people with wisdom from God, we have God, Jesus Christ, who will rule over us for all of eternity and who will decide, who will pass judgment, who will declare right and wrong for all of eternity. Psalm 72.1, the psalmist says this, Give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to the royal son, that is Jesus. Romans 2.16 says, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. The Solomon judged in his day a greater Solomon. Jesus Christ will judge all. In fact, even writing to Christians in 2 Corinthians 5.10, it reads this, We will all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. And each one will receive what is due in the body, whether good or evil. A day is coming when Jesus is going to right all wrongs, when he's going to bring justice for all people of all time, people of every tribe and tongue, people and nation. We will all stand before the Lord and the secrets of hearts will be revealed and the backroom deals will be revealed and the immorality and the poor ethics will be revealed. And the truth of that ought to cause us to fall upon the mercy of God and it ought to cause us to turn from sin. Oh God, be merciful. And he is. Doesn't Psalm 103.12 say, as far as the east is from the west, so far he has removed our sins from us? And doesn't Isaiah 1.18 say, come now, let us reason together. Though your sin be as scarlet, it be made white as snow. Though it be as crimson, it be made like wool. And John adds in 1 John 1, 9, that if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. And then the great verse in Romans 8, 1, therefore, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So a day is coming when God will judge the secrets of our hearts. And again, that ought to cause us to live lives of integrity and godliness. And yet, if we know Jesus Christ as our personal Savior, while we may forfeit some of the rewards we could have had if we lived more faithfully, we will not be damned. We will not be judged. We will be covered with the righteous blood of Christ. But a day is still coming when the righteous judge will judge. And the righteous judge will bring justice. And the injustice we may have received will be made right. And tragically, the injustice we may have meted out will also be made right. But if we know Christ, ultimately, we will never be damned. We will never be condemned. Therefore, therefore, we will not stand in damnation. God will not condemn us 
That's the kind of judge we serve. There is a greater judge than Solomon, an eschatological, an end-time judge. His name is Jesus. Do you know him as Savior? Have you asked him to come into your heart to forgive you of your sin, to grant you eternal life? And if you and I have accepted Christ, are we living for him, knowing that someday light will shine on the actions and the motives, the thoughts, the attitudes, even the inactivities that we are about? Oh, come, Lord Jesus, come. Maranatha, come. Let's pray. Father God, uh, we thank you that your son is the judge. He is omniscient, all-knowing. There is nothing that escapes him from the past, the present, the future, even the middle knowledge, what the what might have been. Father, where Solomon was limited and by 1 Kings 11 was terribly fallen, we thank you that your son is perfect, with perfect knowledge, and that he will adjudicate with perfection. Allow us to live in a way that is pleasing. Father, help us to have hearts of justice. Help us to have hearts of compassion. Help us to care for the least of these and the marginalized. Help us to care for the child out of the womb and in the womb. Help us, Father, to apply your word rightly to our hearts. Thank you for your word. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen.